This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. The last time you heard about GameStop was when you went to the mall to buy video games as a teenager or for your ex-teenager who now has their own teenager. But last week, the brick-and-mortar gaming company was in the news as GameStop prices went through the roof. This past week, on Monday, they opened at $315. And for reference, as recently as January 12th, the stock was at $19.95. So why is this? In recent months, members of the Reddit community, Wall Street Bets, have begun encouraging each other to buy up stock of the company efforts, which began in earnest after several hedge funds announced that they would be betting against the antiquated electronics franchise. For those not familiar with the mechanics of short selling, we'll get deeper into this later on the show. One of the first storylines to emerge from this was one that pitted the upstart nerds against the greedy hedge funds. But like most things, the reality is a bit more complicated. We wanted to break down the craziness on Wall Street and also offer some deeper takeaways for those trying to navigate market and their faith in 2021. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right. This is such a crazy story, Ted. I am really looking forward to your gut check and hearing how you have been making sense of the madness. Morgan, I am a magazine editor, which means that I do not get to play in this stock market world a whole lot. I am not heavily rewarded for paying a whole lot of attention to goings on on Wall Street, nor will I ever be someone for whom short selling is a a possibility. I do browse Reddit on occasion. And so, you know, on Reddit, there was this great glee and joy of we've got these rich dudes on the run and can keep squeezing them till it hurts. And there's nothing they can do about it because there's not enough stocks for them to buy to, to get out. There was this kind of joy that I was watching at sticking it to the man. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit, but. Did you feel joy looking at their joy? (laughs) I will say I, I, (laughs) (laughs) there's always, there's always a David and, you know, David and Goliath narratives are always somewhat appealing. They're always very fun. And I do appreciate Malcolm Gladwell's writing and he had you know he had this book that looks at David and Goliath and he's like you know one of the cases where we look at David and Goliath it's not as much of a mismatch or and there's a number of cases where sometimes Goliath is at the disadvantage and, and Malcolm Gladwell has this whole thing about how it could very well have been that Goliath you know was largely blind that you know he may have had some glandular problems he may have had all these problems that actually would have made him a very bad warrior and particularly susceptible to a a skilled kid with a with a slingshot. I thought Malcolm Gladwell's point was a little bit overstated in that book, <laughs> but, I do, I, but I did come away with his point. That is, David and Goliath cases are not often what they seem to be, 
as I said, I'm a journalist, which means I don't get to play in the stock market, but it does mean I also have a certain degree of skepticism about some of these stories. It's, and it was interesting to watch. I'll, I'll put it that way. This is what I watched with, with mild bemusement to see what would happen. And also what was interesting to me was to be on the Reddit community. Okay, this is going to be a weird analogy. There are some elements like QAnon, which also had kind of the social media aspect. Where mm-hmm. if you were on Reddit, like and not even Wall Street bets, if you were anywhere on Reddit, you would have thought like the whole stock market was turned on its head and that up was down and you know Wall Street was on the run and that this was bigger than the Occupy Wall Street protests of 2011. This is the biggest thing since the derivatives crisis and, and the stock market crash of 2007. And it did not take very many clicks away to say, nope, this is a pretty local, <laughs> this is a pretty localized thing about GameStop and a couple of other uh, short sales that are making a few very rich people very, very angry. So I thought that is interesting. For me, it was in, in as much a story about a social media echo chamber as it was about actually how our markets work. Yeah, I think that that is actually what you're talking about right now, about whether or not this is a localized thing. It's kind of, it's hard to do a gut check on this right now because, of course, the story was really developing in earnest in the middle of last week. But I was listening to the New York Times, the Daily Podcast yesterday, talk about this. And one of their reporters who was covering it suggested this was had significant ramifications, even if it was only felt in several companies and that this had a very, very strong reaction by those that work in finance and work in hedge funds. And they were really nervous about the entire thing. So I am hoping that on the show, we can kind of get a sense about what the longer term impacts of this. I know I've seen a number of people point out that it's very likely that there will be more regulations. And, you know, one of the things that made this possible was Robinhood, which We'll get into a little bit more, but Robinhood is something that makes it very easy for folks like you and me to buy stock. You can just do it on your web browser extremely easily. So, you know, what what was this all going to mean? <laughs> you know, was this a natural conclusion of something that Robinhood had been trying to start a couple years ago? And what was this going to mean for Robinhood and what they had, the chaos that they had helped kind of inject into the market I also kind of think it caught up in these stories like you were talking about, Ted, in terms of like the David and Goliath situation of just wondering what's going to happen. And also it feels like very like almost kind of like there's a participatory element of it. You know, like you were talking earlier about how QAnon, it is kind of like parallels with QAnon. And one of the things that you can see sometimes is there's this desire to do what I think people in the video game call community would call like, you know, live action role playing, right? Where you can actually get out there and thrust yourself into the action. And I do think that this GameStop story had a lot of that appeal too, is that you could also just go on Robin Hood and take part in this thing that was having real world consequences, which I think definitely 100% added to some of the frenzy and excitement that was taking place last week. I'm really glad though that we have some time to kind of go deeper into all of this because, you know, especially being a couple days away from some of the sheer madness and get into what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, you know, and to talk Christian about that. That's what I'm eager for. And so for that, we've got a great guest, Enoch Hill. He is assistant professor of economics at Wheaton College. And before joining the academic world, Hill worked as an actuary with Allstate. He worked with a microfinance organization in Guatemala City. Earlier today, he was chatting on a uh, Wheaton College. They have these talks with faculty and staff about current issues and events. 
So he was talking about the GameStop crisis of 2021. I don't know what we're going to end up calling this thing. Wall Street bets, anyway. All right, Enoch, welcome to Quick to Listen. Great to be here. All right, we need an explainer. Like, like every time we do one of these uh, quick, quick to Listen episodes, it's awesome. My parents, have they listen to this podcast with a piece of pen uh, and paper, and they write down every word uh, that I that we throw out that they're like, I don't know, I don't know that word. My parents are really, really smart. So they're listening, They lo- but they love calling out jargon and concepts that are said and not explained. They are my unofficial listener advocates. So we've said a bunch of things. We've said Robin Hood. We've said market derivatives. We've said all sorts of things. My parents probably are familiar with market derivatives. Short selling. <laughs> short selling. So on, on behalf of our listeners, like explain a little bit what happened last week. As one at Reddit would say, explain like I'm five. Okay. Let's get through the uh, some of the details of what happened and cut through some of that jargon. So first of all, the core instrument that got the focus this week was called a short. When you short something, fundamentally what you're doing is you're owning a negative amount of it. So most of the time you have a long position, which means you have a positive amount. So if I said, you know, what position do you have in chocolate chip cookies? And if you had a box of co- or a jar of cookies on your counter, you'd be long however many cookies were in that jar. Now, what you can do is I could also borrow a cookie from a friend and then sell it to you, in which case I would owe my friend one cookie. So I'd have negative one cookies, in which case I'd be short a cookie. Now, why would you ever want to be short something? Well, for example, right now, PlayStation 5 recently released, I think in November. My students had to tell me that they were already on 5. The PlayStation 5 released, it retails for around $400. And when I looked online today, it was selling for $800. I have a belief that over time, the ability to get your hands on one of these things will become easier. And consequently, the price will drop once again. So if I think the price is going to fall, it would make sense for me to sell one now and buy it back in the future if I didn't you know, want to play with it in the meantime. Now, I don't own a PlayStation 5, but what I might do is go to a broker and say, hey, I think that the PlayStation 5 price is going to drop. So I'd like to short the PlayStation 5. So I would promise to return a PlayStation 5 to them at some point in the future. And in exchange for that, I have to post some security or collateral or some, some cash, some funds, so that they know that I'm good for my word, that if I choose to walk away, they still have those, those funds. They don't end up with the short, set, short end of the stick. And now if in the future it does indeed become the case that the PlayStation is selling for $400, then I could sell it right away at, right now for the $800. I could buy it back at $400 and then return the physical PlayStation to the broker, in which case I made some money. Now suppose there's some production supply chain issues that cause the PlayStation to continue to be in short supply, in which case the price is driven up or, or you know, some... It becomes the the raging success of 2021, and everybody wants to buy one. And the price goes up to, say, $2,000. Now, two things happen. First of all, the person that lent me the PlayStation is concerned that I might have incentive to walk away. Or they can issue a margin call, which is is to say, I want to make sure that you're not going to walk away, so why don't you give me some more collateral? Up the amount you have to $2,000 so that I know that you don't have incentive just to ditch the deal. If I don't have the $2,000, then they can demand the PlayStation on the spot, in which case I have to buy it at the higher cost and immediately turn it around and give it to them, in which case I experience a loss. And an interesting thing about a short is that there is no limit to the amount of losses you can experience. To the, to the present, GameStop seems to be on a trajectory, a downward trajectory. So 
Notably, one hedge fund, but lots of the stock had been heavily shorted. Large amount of the stocks had been sold by people who didn't actually own a, a share. They had borrowed the shares. And so this caused the price of the stock to drop below what some people thought GameStop was worth. So, you know, GameStop was, it's a brick and mortar company, but it's not doing that bad. It's, you know, it's paying its bills, et cetera. And so maybe you might think that the true value is higher than the, it was trading for $4 near the end of 2020. So maybe you think the true value is higher than that. So you might want to go long. Another thing that you can do, though, is try to force the price up and up and up such that these funds, that these hedge funds that had the short position cannot actually afford to post the collateral required to continue being in the short position, at which point they have to buy the funds at the very high price. This first causes them to realize a loss. But second, if you know anything about supply and demand, if somebody has to buy a large amount of something, that's an increase in demand, which is going to further drive up the price. And so at this point, you get what's called a short squeeze. And the price is being driven in an exacerbated manner, up and up and up, as more of these people are forced to unwind their short positions. This is what the Wall Street Bets channel was really trying to get to, and they succeeded. Let's pause for a second on that, because I did have one follow-up question. Morgan mentioned earlier at the top of the show that a number of these places announced that they were you know, going to be, or that they were you know, shorting GameStop stock. Why would a place announce that they're doing that? Like, you know, it, it seems like they would make it more likely for a squeeze to occur. So squeezes are actually an unusual thing. They're, they're, they're a kind of market manipulation. And in a sense, they're not efficient. In general, they're not usually desired. And they're not very common. First of all, legally, the com- I mean, the short positions are public information. So you can go and find out how many shares are currently held, are shorted in, for any particular stock. For example, Tesla has a lot of its shares shorted at, the, at present. People, people, are think, people are thinking it's overvalued, so they're shorting it. That's right. That's right. And second, it's possible that people, you know, in this case, people went for the short squeeze. But often, if you see other people are selling or betting against the company, you might think, oh, it's probably not a good idea for me to hold on to this. So sometimes it can have an effect of depressing the sale price of the stock. Let's start really quick just on the the short. I understand in any, you know, the whole idea of a, of a market is some people think something's worth a certain price and some people think it's worth more than that. Some people think it's worth less than that. The stock market allows all sorts of ways for you to kind of, to use gambling language, place your bet. I know there's reasons why we may not want to use gambling language, but for the sake of the metaphor, let's say that. But it does seem like a short, you know, especially writ large, and you know, there's these hedge funds and other other places that do a lot of shorting, right? So it seems like since they're more likely to drive down prices and since they're more likely to make things <laughs> less valuable, are they somehow less good for companies, less good for the economy in general? You know, this is something that someone asked me this week. Why do we, why do we allow, you know, this kind of level of, of, of short selling? <laughs> it seems like, seems like people would be easily hurt with that. Not just investors, but companies would be hurt by that. Yeah, this is a great question and an important one to understand if we want to talk about whether this type of asset or option should even exist. Let's go back to 2007, the beginning of the financial crisis. There is a sort of exuberance in terms of 
the housing market and these mortgage-backed securities, they seem like an unsinkable asset. They seem like something that's too good to fail. So historically, when there's been recessions, the housing market has actually been pretty smooth. And now if there are failures, they might be reasonable so or regional. So you, you probably don't experience systematic failure countrywide. So to like diversify across mortgage income streams across the country, that sounds really, really good. But what we failed to take into account was that this kind of separated the broker who is facilitating the, the mortgage, who is the decision maker of when, when someone gets a loan or not, and the person taking out the loan. You get this big decline in the quality of the loans being issued. And now without the ability to short the market, there's no ability to voice through action or to articulate through your actions, through your activities that you take, that you believe that the market is overpriced. And maybe you've seen the movie, The Big Short. They're portrayed in that movie as the heroes. And I think there's, there's a lot of interesting discussion to be had there. But what they're doing is they're saying, we think the housing market is overpriced. We think that there's a fundamental problem. And nobody really wanted to listen to them because it was like bad news. We just want housing prices to keep going up. Everybody seems to be winning. This seems to be a really good thing. But there was a fundamental problem. And the ability to short was disciplining the market from going too far off the rails. More recently, Herbalife was another example. There was somebody who thought that this was more of a pyramid scheme than a, than a actual foundationally strong company. And so they started, through their actions, shorting shares of the, of the company, which brought to light that it probably wasn't, shouldn't be transacting at the higher price. So it's kind of like a way for the wisdom of the crowds to take effect. If you can only vote that you think that the value of the firm is undervalued, then you're always going to guess too high. But this kind of prevents some bubbles from occurring, the ability to short. Enoch, I, I, just to kind of maybe present a different perspective on here, do you think that many of the folks that are working for hedge funds that do end up shorting things are coming with altruistic motives or this just ends up being perhaps one of the positive things that hedge funds might be able to do and that they actually are, are, you know, a very deeply cynical tool in the market. There is an interesting aspect of a lot of these activities that where the individual beneficial action is also societally beneficial. So I was actually reading the article on CT about this practice of the wealthy in the Israelite community to store up grain and then during a drought to sell it at, at higher prices. Now, this is clearly advantageous to the wealthy and, and it's clearly not virtuously motivated. At the same time, if there was not an incentive to store up grain during good times for the bad times, you might have mass starvation, which might be worse. Like if you were a benevolent dictator and you were trying to say, how can we best provide for our people? You'd want to incentivize them to store up during bad times for good times. So sometimes like the actions that are motivated through non-virtuous incentives result in possibly beneficial outcomes. But I don't want to say, I don't want to end the conversation, that stream of thought right there. There's also negative activity that can occur through hedge funds. So just like the Reddit users were systematically manipulating the market in order to benefit themselves and hurt someone else in the process, this can happen the other way around. In general, I would be against market power, the ability for large movers, or in this more present case, a, a combined group of small movers, to manipulate prices. And so if a company wants to manipulate prices, they could intentionally force down the price of the firm and, and maybe initiate a hostile taker or do something else to extract wealth from the firm to the detriment of society more broadly. So I think sometimes it can result 
in the benefit more broadly of society, and sometimes it can be actively in the against the interests of society in the in the interests of the hedge fund. Yeah. So Enoch, what you're talking about is something that I've seen a lot of folks who <laughs> maybe don't always have finance at the top of their brains pondering this week, which is how is it fair then for people to complain, you know, about the folks on Wall Street bets going after GameStop and some of the other companies that they have decided to selectively target? How is that something that is considered unfair and is getting attacked? And, you know, some folks have, you know, called for regulation. But meanwhile, hedge funds, what they are seeing, you know, what they are doing is legal. Do you, are you familiar with attempts to regulate hedge funds in the past or some of, you know, perhaps a look at how the rules have changed for them over time? So this is admittedly an area outside of my area of expertise. I'm a theoretical macroeconomist. That said, there does seem to be significant evidence that hedge funds are able to successfully cream skim, that is to like extract some of the wealth that is being created in not a beneficial manner. And I think that this is bad. This is something that we want, that we should be concerned about that could be improved upon. That said, I think that we need to be consistent in what we view as negative. So as a Christian, I don't think the response to sin ought to be, well, they sinned, I should do it too. And we should all just accept that that's going to happen. I think the better thing is to say, how can we systematically prevent this from happening in all cases? And it makes sense that people are frustrated and angry. And I do think that there's some, there's a couple streams at play that should be addressed. And I'm happy to get into those. So one of them is inequality. And another one of them is the ability of certain large actors to benefit themselves at the expense of others. So inequality. I think a lot of the anger and frustration that we're seeing expressed, which is really interesting because like it's one of the first bipartisan responses we've seen. We see people on the right and on the left both being like, yeah. The, the good guys beat the bad guys. David beat Goliath. Or, or, in, or in the case, you know, like the, the app that people were largely using to trade was this app, Robinhood, which is like the classic, you know, <laughs> like it's advertising itself as like steal from the rich, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And so, but that being said, so I actually had a discussion with a student earlier today about this very thing. And, and they were exp- expressing some of these same sentiments that like, yeah, it seems like there are certain wealthy groups or organizations that are taking advantage of their position. And that's, that's true. Or, or let's, let's grant that is true. And in some cases, it certainly is true. As Christians, what should our response be? And what is motivating the actions of the, of the events that have transpired this last week? When we're trying to analyze it, there's a couple themes that come up. One is that there seems to be some of the individuals on the Reddit channel seem to be motivated by greed. They're just, they see an opportunity. They think GameStop's going to go up temporarily in value. They want to get in when it's low, get out when it's high and, and fine. Other people are like, no, I'm doing this on like principle. I want to get revenge, essentially. I want to hurt somebody else because they've hurt me. Neither of these are like classic Christian virtues or things that we really want to cultivate, I think, either individually as a society or as a, as a faith practice. What I do think that might be more constructive coming out of this is to recognize, yeah, there is a lot of frustration and pain here. And I think that, you know, empirically, we can see, yes, this is occurring. So there's been some great research by Chetty showing how absolute income mobility has been falling. The probability that you'll be wealthier than the pre- pri- prior generation has fallen pretty dramatically in very observable and empirically measurable ways. And to the extent it's not falling, there's a lot of concentration of the income distribution at the, at the most wealth, among the most wealthy. Some of the drivers of this is the return to labor 
the share of all income that goes towards wages has fallen relative to the returns to capital. So people who have wealth are starting to accumulate wealth more rapidly. So these are systematic things that I think that the pent up collective emotional response to this kind of demonstrates. But I think the more productive channels might be through thinking, how do we systematically think about inequality and working towards what might be more reasonably, equitably distributed access rather than let's hurt them because they hurt us. You're an economics guy who works at a Christian college who talks a lot about the integration of faith and learning. And I'm interested whether you, from students, from colleagues, and just in your own, in your own work, if you experience more kind of Christian anxiety about a gap of inequality or over the kind of method of gains, you know, like, you know, I have started to hear more than I used to among evangelicals, biblical references to discussion about how people gain wealth. So, you know, I've heard more people talking about the verse, you know, he who does not work shall not eat and saying, you know, like, how, how was it that that got framed entirely as kind of a verse about welfare versus a, a conversation about some of these economic activities of, you know, you know passive, passive wealth accumulation or, you know, investing in, in stocks or, you know, the, the area of John 4 where this parable about the harsh man who reaps where he did not sow and gathers where he did not scatter seed. So, yeah, this is, this is a... This is a bad dude. You know, somehow we got in our heads that this was somehow, uh, you know, an, an image of God. But in fact, this is saying, this parable is saying something important about the rich getting richer, the poor getting poor, and the way in which that happens. What are you hearing and how much are you hearing concern about, you know, the growing inequality gap and how much are you hearing in terms of the Bible and how much are you hearing it in terms of this idea of people earning money without, quote unquote, you know, working for it, rich, rich folks gaining money without working for it. Yeah, I definitely think that there's an increase in focus on inequality versus the absolute level of the standard of living. But I also think that it's interesting that when we start talking about inequality, I don't have to clarify what types of inequality we're talking about, especially as Christians, that should be concerning. Because I don't think most of us would articulate that the most important element of humanity or being alive or being created in the image of God is our material prosperity. You know, that doesn't seem to be high on, like, at least, definitely not the top of the list of what's important. Wouldn't access to other believers or your, you know, your ability to make an impact on your community or the strength or depth of your relationships, which seems to be one of the greatest predictors of, like, overall health, wouldn't inequality in these sectors be better candidates for what we focus on? We do have this peculiar and consistent action of like hyper focusing on inequality of wealth. But yeah, it does seem to be increasing. The, when the Bible talks about inequality, doesn't it most I mean when and when it talks about poverty, it talks about the poor. I mean there are, you know, there's verses I can point to about the poor in spirit and that kind of thing, but aren't, you know, the vast 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 majority of the Bible's references to inequality similarly time up financial inequality? Yeah, I would defer, I would defer to you to, to tell me the answer. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't know. I, think, I, mean, I, I don't know. Off the top of my head, so, and, and I do think, I, I, it seems quite clear to me that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God the Father and Christ Jesus are intimately concerned with the plight of the 
enforced in society. There's also a lot of verses that do seem to be addressing equality that, to the extent, like, do not treat the foreigner or the widow or others in a different manner than you treat others. Don't treat differently the poor or the wealthy among you. But the concern is focusing on, like, maybe honor. I, I think there are, I don't, I don't know that I, I, I disagree with you. So I don't want to, I, I do think that there is some emphasis on treating everybody with equal honor. I think that gets to Imago Dei, which I think is, like, one of the most fundamentally important views of, of equality that we, we have and respect and as valuable. And I also think that there is a very heavy and consistent focus on wealth, which is interesting, which is, is a great point. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that question, though, about whether should we view investments as a way, as a method of work, or should we see it more akin to earning money without working for it? Let's focus on this this idea of the sector of finance. Should it exist? What purpose does it serve, et cetera? I had an exchange student a couple of years ago from Rwanda, and he viewed that the biggest thing holding Rwanda back from economic success is, a, is an undeveloped financial sector, which is kind of a counter, counter to the view you might think of in the United States. That it might be the financial sector that's holding us back. So which is it, or, or what is the right amount, which is maybe a, a more helpful question? What roles does it play, and where might it get to be detrimental? So what does finance do? Well, fundamentally, what finance is trying to do is connect the resources of people who don't have good uses for those resources in the present with people who have good uses of those resources. So when you take out a loan, usually you're doing it to do something. It might be to increase your, your education and your ability to have access to like more productive or higher paying jobs. It might be the idea of that you want to be an entrepreneur and you want to start some new business, you have this fantastic idea, you just need somebody who believes in you and who has some excess wealth at present that they can lend to you. And your success becomes their success and your failure becomes their failure. In some sense, it actually entwines or aligns your, your objective with theirs, at least in some senses. Finance, when done well, helps allocate society's resources. So if financial institutions are able to accurately identify those firms with the best ideas, the most promising new medical treatments, et cetera, whatever it is, and they can channel funds to those organizations, that's actually probably going to be to the benefit of everyone. A lot of countries that don't have developed financial sectors, the ideas that are implemented are those who have the societal networks that are most advantageous. So if you know the person who gets to decide who allocates the wealth or you're the one who's most likely to have the implemented idea, which is not necessarily the best or most productive idea. It might be incredibly inefficient or it might be incredibly self-serving. You might get that contract because you're going to give a huge kickback to whoever's allocating the loans or the funds or the wealth. So a developed financial sector is actually, can be a really, really good thing. Would you say, Enoch, that there is a relationship between the stock market success and how well the economy is serving people overall? So what is the stock market? It's basically distributed ownership of the income stream of a bunch of Companies. So, like recently, we've seen this kind of go all over the place. But the reason you, in normal times, might buy GameStop is because you think that the stream of profits that they will earn over the future is higher in value than the current price. So, if, if the price was $10 a share and you think that they're going to be able to pay dividends of a dollar per year, that's a pretty good buy. And so, that's historically why people buy shares. And what does that do for the firms? Well, it gives them the ability to raise additional funds to expand their businesses if they're good ideas. And, and if companies' share prices are falling, then they probably can't raise much additional funds to expand or invest, uh, grow, etc. 
Now, what's the relationship between like the everyman and the stock market? And and I think this is another particularly acute point right now, as so many of us are seeing so many restrictions on our activities. A lot of people are losing jobs or seeing reductions in their hours that they have to work. And at the same time, we see the stock market increasing. Now, these aren't measuring the success of simultaneous things. So when the stock market increases, it's kind of a signal of the optimism or collective optimism or pessimism about what's going to happen in the future in terms of these profits. So there's two possibilities. One is that the profits of companies are aligned with the economic outcomes for the workers. That seemed to be more or less true historically. But there's indicators that that might be less and less true going forward. So, for example, in manufacturing, we've seen the economic output of the manufacturing sector in the U.S. increase pretty significant increases. At the same time, we see the number of workers in the manufacturing sector decline, lots of hours, wages cut, etc. So there's multiple forces going on here. A lot of this is signifying that there's been a lot of technological replacement of jobs that were previously done by what this means is that the people who invest in these companies, like more of the returns or the benefits or the profits of these companies is connected to the ability of those companies to buy the robotics and machinery that are going to produce the output rather than finding the right employees. So that there's becoming a disconnect. This is really kind of getting close to some of Piketty's work in this conversation on, on inequality arising from the people who have wealth versus the, the ability to generate wealth through work, which is a very interesting conversation to have too. Boring. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up 
and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Talking about the the underlying issues that are driving us here, because one of the things I thought was interesting is that there's been a number of companies that have gone public in the past year that folks have nevertheless felt were overvalued, right? And that <laughs> the the price that of the or the the overall value that the company was kind of set at seemed almost like unbelievably outrageous, right? And and I, it's important, I think, when we're talking about this kind of disconnect to say that there, you know, there are people watching and there seems to be this overall sense of cynicism growing. You know, I think you talked about this a little bit about this desire that you've seen for people to want to take revenge. But I also want to just talk about cynicism too. How might you call Christians who are not making millions of dollars off the stock market to channel their feelings and reactions in these places? Because I do think that this situation did give people a sense of efficacy and a, a way that they could feel like, oh, I'm going to have an impact in taking this on rather than, you know, feeling like they were somehow being victimized by the circumstances. So a couple of things come to mind. The first one that's interesting is if we think that these companies are overvalued, it actually brings us back to the idea of the short. Like if you think a company is overvalued and that the price will fall over time, then you can bet against the company by having a short position or there's other ways that you can you can make the same kind of bet. So there's we, we want to think about like what instruments should be out there to keep prices disciplined in some sense. But that's not really the heart of the question that you're asking. The heart of the question is things feel unjust, unfair. It seems like some people are making out really well through the through this really challenging period while other people are struggling just to make ends meet. And, and what can we do? Well, first, I think that we need to ask like to what end are we acting? With these events, we what what happened with the GameStop episode? Certainly was the case that a hedge fund was hurt pretty badly. Like we, there was a huge loss to this to this hedge fund. Now the primary actors on this Reddit page aren't. I mean, maybe you want to, maybe we root for them, but they're also not the saviors. Maybe that we want them to be, like the source of of all good. There's been a lot of like white supremacy language or other concerning rhetoric that's occurring on some of these Reddit pages, and and a lot of maybe unvirtuous conversation. I think. I don't view the actions as necessarily bad or necessarily good, but I think that this is something that, that I, I heard from Keller and I found really impactful was that whenever we look for salvation from some sector of humanity, we're going to be disappointed because fundamentally the folks on Wall Street and we ourselves, all of us are falling and there isn't going to be a source that is not going to eventually disappoint us. Like Our hope is ultimately in Christ. And second, more practically, if we want to do something Taking out one hedge fund that may or may not have been acting in any systematically negative way, may, I don't think is accomplishing any of the things that we you might hope to accomplish. It might feel good to, to hurt somebody else, but I don't know if that impulse is cultivating that impulse is ultimately going to help anyone. Maybe it would be helpful to speak about what a hedge fund actually exists for. A hedge is to, to reduce risk. Suppose that you worked at GameStop. Now, if GameStop does really, really well, you don't need a lot of income at that point. Like, you still have your job, you're doing fine. But if GameStop goes under, then it might make sense that you would lose your job. And at that point, you want to have some additional funds. So what a hedge fund does is it tries to say, what is the exposure for this group? So if you were working at GameStop, your exposure might be GameStop going out of business. Well, then the hedge fund thinks, well, how can I create some financial instrument that when a bad thing happens to you, we can provide at least a bottom 
to the negative outcome at the cost of some cost to when things are going relatively relatively well. And now, who are the clients for these hedge funds? Often they're pensions, they're, they can be some governments or, or uh, they can be u- unions, et cetera. So it's the organizations that are the clients of these hedge funds are trying to minimize their risk in different states of the world so that if things are fundamentally really, really good, maybe you lose some of the upward gain, but in exchange when things are really, really bad, you've hedged your losses, you've increased the lower bound of your losses. So sometimes by shorting these companies, they might not even be that interested specifically in GameStop, but it might move in the opposite direction of what they're trying to prevent. So like, it may be the case, I I don't know enough to know whether this particular hedge fund was doing something that was manipulating and extracting funds from society, or whether it was just trying to serve its clients in a good manner. It just strikes me that like, there is this responsiveness, like bad things have happened to us, we want to do bad things to other people. And maybe it's cynicism. I mean, it's, it's also wrapped up in cynicism and all these other things, but I don't know that if we exercise these feelings that they're going to lead to societally improvement, improving outcomes. I think we need to think more holistically, how do we start addressing this systematic increase in inequality that we're observing? How do we get access for wider po- segments of the population to the things that are going to correlate to the ability to earn higher income? I, I view those as more constructive uh, directions to take the conversation. If we want to avoid feelings of revenge and feelings of resentment, obviously these are not compatible with fruits of the spirit, generally speaking. I am wondering what Christians should positively be thinking about the stock market. How should the way we read the Bible, uh, how should our theology be informing our approach to the stock market differently than our neighbor's approach to the stock market? Here's the funny thing is, is like, I almost never think about the stock market. I I, I don't love reading financial briefs. I, I invest in broad mutual funds uh, that I have in my retirement account, and I never look at them and I never change them. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, yes. In, the, in that sense, the, uh, the life of a Christian college professor may be very similar to the life of an editor, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one is you can check your motives and say, what am I investing for? I think that there is a a good aspect to the stock market. It it makes it possible for new ideas to become realities. And those might be very good ideas and very worthy ideas. Second, the value of something is a really interesting thing. What's the price of something? Now, several historical economists, Marx and, and Smith included, have observed that like there's lots of different ways to think about value. The price of a Bible is only a couple dollars today. And same with the price of a medium, I don't know, a venti coffee in the morning from Starbucks. Like that doesn't mean the fundamental value of these things is equivalent, but we change prices based on our actions, based on our relative demand for a good compared to its supply. So like if we want to see more of some kind of company or idea coming to light, we can take action that resu- like collectively results in positive things coming out. So this was, maybe that's a way to think about this, these events is that there is a great power of the internet and of social media to coordinate the actions of lots of s- smaller individuals, of people who normally couldn't make a noticeable effect on the market. And maybe we can think like, what are ways we can systematically move to demonstrate that we fundamentally care about these areas of society, creating more products like this one, et cetera. Here's what I'm wondering. Okay, there's a lot of conversation right now about faith and work and the goodness of work. And in fact, that there was work in the Garden of Eden and there is very likely 
there's all signs that, that there will still be work, not necessarily toil, but work in the coming kingdom. We, we will have jobs to do in the same sense that we have jobs now. The way in which we were talking, that if that work is good, and the way in which we talk about kind of the market as being a way for us to help the workers get what they need in, in, in a lot of cases. It is, it is a way for us to share in common in some ways. Like at a base level, if we say there's going to be work in the new kingdom, do we think there's going to be economic activity in the new kingdom? Ooh, I don't know. Okay, so he, I did have a couple of thoughts as you were presenting the question. The first one is that work and jobs are different things. So you don't necessarily have to, I mean, historically, the organization of labor into firms is a relatively recent event. It arises, you know, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Before that, you would work, but you'd work with your family alongside your community. It wasn't necessarily the case that you would be employed via contract for a set wage for a set period of time. Secondarily, I think a lot of the most important work we do is never financially compensated, but it's still, I would consider it work. And I think that's maybe what you're getting to is it doesn't, <laughs> economics is the study of the allocation of scarce resources. And scarce just means there's less of something than things you want to do with that thing, which means economics is kind of the study of choice. So, you know, economic activity has come to mean monetary transactions. I don't think it has to. It means it could be that like we do something for somebody else and they do something in response and it could be motivated by a desire for material gain. But there's other reasons we can be motivated to do something. Like I do something for my, I, when I'm at my best, I do things for my children sacrificially because I did not because I desire a personal return, but because I, I desire their flourishing. That's still an incentive that motivates me to action, that motivates me to work. And so I would still consider that in the realm of like, you could study that thinking about things through an economic model, even though in you know popular diction, that would be an unusual way to phrase it. Sure. I'm just wondering from a Christian perspective, we have kind of the goodness of our limitations, right? There's all sorts of ways in which God created us good and created us limit, limited at, at, at the same time. There are also areas in which there is scarcity because of the consequences of the fall, which turns you know work into toil in a lot of ways. You know, as we're describing the good of the stock market, if we see the stock market as something that at its core could be so good that it would not be out of place in God's coming kingdom and it's full, full of its fruition? Or is it so tied to the fallenness, the scarcity that is purely the result of the fall, that when God comes to redeem all things, that the idea of a stock market would be so alien to, God, to the conception of, of God's kingdom that it's just nonsense to talk about when we talk about some of these things, about why there's a stock market, the exchange of money for, for, for work and that kind of thing, you know, getting value from one thing to another. When we talk about the limits, are we talking about the limits that are good or the scarcity that's not so good? Yeah, that's funny because I think the language that I use as an economist is it means different things than the language that you've used in that question. When economists say scarcity, they just mean there's less of something freely available than things you want to do with that thing. So time is scarce. My physical presence is scarce because I would like to be with my kids right now and I am enjoying this conversation. So like, so, so a Christian economist has no problem saying there was scarcity in the garden. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that there's something beautiful about scarcity because like it is my inability, like the exclusiveness of my relationship with my wife means that I cannot be married to everybody in the world. 
But I think there's something beautiful in choosing her to the exclusion of everybody, you know, the scarcity of that choice. I can only make one, right? And I think that that's beautiful. So, you know, I think scarcity lets us glorify God by choosing him above all of the things. We can't, ha- we can't love God and money equally. Like that's just, we can only serve one or the other. And I think that's a type of scarcity, at least the way the economist understands the word. That said, will there be a stock market? I don't think there's going to be a stock market in heaven. I also don't think the stock market is like a sinful activity. It, it, it has definitely be, been used in sinful ways. I don't think it's fundamentally a sinful activity, but I expect that there'll be lots of things that are inherently neither good or evil that will not exist in heaven that did exist on earth. So why? I, I guess that, I guess that's what I'm... What I'm yeah, what I'm okay, so... So we currently, there's a couple of things. One is we currently do not have the capacity to intimately know every single person on the planet. We are limited in that ability of knowledge. There's this incredible things that happen, thing that happens. Like the supermarket doesn't know how much my daughter loves blueberries or that, you know, my son likes strawberries, but because they have these modelers who try to anticipate what I'm going to want, where I'm going to want it. They have created these complex supply chains that span the globe. And every week, like, I don't fear. It's astonishing when there are shortages. I don't fear that there's going to be the exact combinations of goods and services there. And there's no way for, like, we've tried to centrally plan these things. Even if we were 100% virtuous and loving and whatever, there might just be a fundamental lack of knowledge to know exactly which things each person wants. But with us all independently acting, one of the greatest you know, insights about what prices are is they're, they're a whole bunch of knowledge condensed to a single number that allow us to take certain behaviors to satisfy the needs of our brothers and sisters. You know, we may never get to know personally. There's also, there's also disadvantages, and I'm happy to talk about those. Like There's a, a great insight that the market lets us serve the needs of people we've never even met in really meaningful ways. They also make it so we don't rely on specific other people. Some, there's something really beautiful about being needed. And if you weren't there to pick me up when I was stranded at work, I would still be stuck at work. There's something beautiful about that. The market lets me hail a cab, which like meets my need by somebody who you know, didn't know me and didn't know that I was going to be stuck at work, but I don't have to rely on a specific individual. So there's, there's interesting elements to, to all of this. I'm glad you talked about prices because I do think that prices are one of the... <laughs> it, it, it's interesting just to think about the ways in which prices and relationships are related and aren't related. And oftentimes they force you or they enable you to not have a relationship with people, which I believe is what you're saying right here. They enable things to scale. And I've often kind of wondered about exactly how I feel about that. You know, I do think there is a cost to losing the personal relationship with someone that would have happened if you needed to hail a cab or go to the and I don't know, in this case, it would be a grocery store, but you needed to buy produce or you needed to obtain something, right? And all of it had to be negotiated beforehand. There is something that is also, you know, very human-centered in the absence of prices. <laughs> Even at the same time, it may make our life a little bit more inconvenient. I heard you say a couple minutes ago, Enoch, something to the extent of, you know, you're not thinking about the stock market a lot of days. Are there specific questions about our financial systems and the economy and the markets that you think perhaps maybe too many Christians have kind of fallen asleep to and allowed to work in the background of their lives, but not necessarily engaged in some of, you know, just more serious theological analysis that you would want, you know, Christians to begin thinking about a little bit more intentionally over the next couple of years? I I totally agree with you. I think that there is something that's deeply profound that is lost 
when we, due to the like impersonal interactions we can make in the market. If all of our life was defined by market transaction, that would be extremely lonely and we'd have lost something great. At the same time, it's really easy to gloss over the benefits that have accrued due to the market. And, and maybe they're not worth the cost. It certainly could be the case and it's reasonable to argue as such. But like prior to widespread use of markets for the majority of our transactions, the widespread use of property rights, like life expectancy on the planet averaged below 35 years. Average incomes were about four, you know, $400 per person per year was the median income of the planet until the mid 1700s. If you had to do everything yourself or rely on people that you individually knew, you know, you would be very, very inefficient. Maybe it's like a longer life isn't that valuable. Maybe it's more about having meaningful relationships with other people, which I think is the most important aspect of being human is our relationship. It's an interesting thing to reflect on more. There, there are certainly trade-offs there. The second question, what as Christians have we maybe been lax on reflecting on? I think of, of my class perhaps than my faith, but I have the ability to not seriously engage with the limitations of opportunities that might be afforded if I had a, a lower income or if I had and had the educational opportunities I've experienced, etc. And I think that the decreases societally in mobility have been pretty well documented by economists. Like the American dream of the 1800s isn't as strong in the present as it was at one point in time. And that has pretty strong implications. So like, it's easy to say, well, if people would just work hard, then they, then they'll make enough money to make a livable wage and we want to incentivize work. But what if it, it does very much seem to be the case that more and more of the income in society is going to those who already have wealth? And how do you start if that's where it ends up? I think we need to start thinking about this shift in the income distribution from returns to, to labor to returns on capital. I don't think there's enough attention being given to this. And I think Piggy's book definitely kickstarted the conversation. As Christians, it ought to, it ought to concern us as well. Another area is access to the means to the inputs to production. So when I look at the concepts of Jubilee, I see there's a reversion. There's an inability to permanently sell your land or yourself. Slaves are released and land is returned to original owners every 50 years. As an agricultural economy, these are the primary inputs to production. Today, the primary input to production is no longer land. It seems to be human capital and physical capital. But I think we need to be seriously thinking about how do we ensure that generational poverty doesn't occur because of the structures inherent in society? And what might the present day versions of the concepts supported in the idea of Jubilee look like if we were to implement them seriously today? One question with some of that is you know, as we look at, you know, our 401ks or, or what have you, there's been a lot of attention, I think, in Christian worlds on, on you know, ethical investing and, you know, that kind of thing and make sure that you're not investing in companies that, you know, are using slave labor or are engaged in whatever problematic practices. Given what you've said about kind of the needs, the ways in which some of this activity can can reflect kingdom values. It seems like ethical investing gets us part of the way there in terms of avoiding, you know, quote unquote, sin stocks or whatever. How attentive should we be? Should we be looking at things like how many people do you employ? You know, should we be investing very locally, like you were saying? You know, you know, perhaps that you know one of the reflections of the kingdom could be this kind of more local economic activity. Or is it more the um, creating more wealth so that we can 
have more wealth in the system and we can give away more of our personal wealth. Where are you on that? How, how much do you, you said you don't pay much attention to the stock market, but are, you know, are you, as you personally invest, are you looking at, you know, like how much work is this company giving? Who's working? Where are they working? How, how should Kingdom Values affect the actual things that we're buying with our stocks? Or are you like index funds is the way to go, man? <laughs> yeah, I mean, where I'm at is I buy index funds. I'm not sure that that's a Christian informed activity. It is what I'm doing right now. So if you really want to say I am committed to make sure that the moral integrity of the company I'm invested in is like high, like there's a, there's a base level you can do and to avoid certain egregious issues. I think that this is the wrong focus. So I'm, I'm going to talk about this for a second, but I want to shift us to, to more sacrificial means. So we can try to be to some extent responsible with the firms and, and organizations we invest in. I don't think it's feasible for us to, to know. And even if we did know how often are, I mean, if the courts cannot figure out what happened in specific situations, how likely are we to know the moral integrity and, and the virtue of companies or even more so individuals and companies and that they treat their workers well or they treat their workers poorly? I don't know how feasible and how beneficial all of those efforts would be if, if we took all of that potential effort and instead we thought like, how can I be most effectively loving the people that I come into contact with day to day? Like, how can I help the people that God has put in my path sacrificially through whatever income streams I have the privilege of enjoying? I think that's perhaps a more fruitful direction to take the conversation. Like when I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think like what I come away with that is the person that it is in my capacity to help, that's the person I'm responsible to help. And there's an interesting observation. So the economist Deirdre McCloskey makes the observation that about half of all of our income we spend on people who are not ourselves. That like the market has provided a, a large increase in the total level of wealth in society. And now I also think that it has to some extent crafted us or formed us to be more greedy or desiring of more, ever and ever higher amounts. I don't know that that's necessary, at least individual, at the individual level. It, it is something we should be concerned about society. But at the individual level, I think we can say, like, I have been blessed with much. I have a lot of responsibility and I ought to be actively searching. How can I sacrificially and, and responsibly use what I've been given towards loving good deeds, towards the people that God has placed in my path? I think that might be more productive and maybe more consistent with my understanding of how we should live. Enoch, thank you very much for this extremely lively and interesting <laughs> discussion. I truly appreciate just, you know, all the stuff that you gave us to think about for people who have reactions to the stuff that we talked about today. You can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. I would imagine that a number of our listeners have different approaches and strategies to how they live out there values when it comes to investing and being a part of the financial world. So please feel free to share that with us because we'd love to hear from you guys on that. And you can also go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. And it's where we ask everyone to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, over to you. We do this every week, Morgan. So you'd think I'd be ready for it this week. <laughs> I did. It's I true. I have many things that I that have brought me joy and that I'm grateful for. The thing is, I keep saying these same things every week. You know, it's a little bit of a groundhog day for me because I'm like, 
Oh, I already talked about that one. Oh, I already talked about that one. I already talked about that one. So I'm just going to do a rundown. It's kind of an echo, but it's, you know what? You can be grateful for the same thing. There's all sorts of parts in scripture where people are, you know, thanking God for the same thing over and over and over again. We say thanks for our food every single meal. It's all good to be thankful for that. That's my precious moment. I'm thankful for the same things I've been thankful for. I'm thankful that my daughter made some delicious cookies this week. Frankly, they were really, really good. Butterscotch cookies, that's my favorite. I played a great board game with my son. It was really dang fun. Can't remember which one it was, but it was really fun. Whatever. Oh, I was. it was Star Wars Outer Rim. I can say more about that on a later podcast if people want, but you kind of got to be really into Star Wars to play it. I had a an amazing YouTube webinar kind of interactive thing Patreon deal with Wendell Kimbrough, the uh, psalm worship guy that I've mentioned on this podcast a number of times who just has revolutionized my spirituality and spiritual life with his the way he does psalms. That was on Sunday night. Super grateful. I, you know, I've got one more church meeting tonight and there's all sorts of things going on in church life in my work that makes me tremendously grateful that I am in an extremely healthy church with an extremely healthy and loving and great pastor. And we have a very wonderful, wise bishop that I've just sent a message to about how much I've appreciated his leadership of our of our diocese. I think I've mentioned every single one of those at least once, probably mul- multiple times on the podcast. And so my precious moment's gone on too long for reruns, but I'm grateful for all those things that I'm still are happening. I'm you so really put the, the moments, you know, with the S, the S in the moments right there. That's right. Yeah. It's supposed to be everybody else's, the, the collection of the three of us is moments, but yes, they're all precious. So anyway, I'm on Twitter where I'm slightly less repetitive at Ted Olson, T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N. Morgan Lee, what are you grateful for? What is your precious moment that gave you joy? I'm also wondering if I'm starting to repeat myself a little bit, but I had the opportunity to go to a garden slash farm last week. It's associated with a church called Hamahana Community Church. And this church is specifically sees their mission as reaching out to people who are native Hawaiian pastor who I got to talk to a little bit. He is from Maui and he ended up going to seminary at Golden Gate Seminary and came back to the islands, but not to Maui. He came to Oahu and he has been working on just reaching out to the community. So they actually have Bible studies that they do in Hawaiian, which is really cool. And when I told him that I was Hawaiian, he was like, do you have a Hawaiian Bible? And I was like, I do not. And he came back and he gave me this really beautiful Bible that is in Hawaiian on one side and in English on the other side. I just thought that was a really wonderful thing to learn about. I'm going to be coming there on future Fridays to go volunteer. Essentially, one of the reasons they have this farm is that they grow produce and then kind of use it as a way to connect with the community who comes by and often takes advantage of that stuff. They also have a bunch of tents out there where they host church outside. And so I'm hoping to make it out for church one of these Sundays too. So it's not really close to where I am. I think people know that I live in Honolulu. This is on the windward side. So the other side of the island, but It was really cool to learn more about that. So good for them. People can follow me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Enoch, over to you. Oh, those are great moments. Jealous. Sounds sounds like a beautiful (laughs) experience. This last week, it snowed quite a bit where I am in Illinois. We're in Wheaton. I have a one in three and a five-year-old. 
it has revolutionized the experience of snow because for the last couple decades, it's become sort of an inconvenience that requires a lot of extra work in the morning when it snows. And, and this year, my kids, we were so excited to have a large snowfall and they plowed all of the snow in the public library parking lot into this enormous pile. It was, the drift might've been 15 feet or so tall. And, uh, we spent several hours climbing it and sliding down it, and it was completely spontaneous and unexpected. And I was just thankful for the opportunity to do that with my wife and my kids. It was just an awesome, uh, surprising weekend afternoon. What do your kids like to do in the snow? Yeah, I mean, do they like to build snowmen? Do they like to have snowball fights? We're trying. <laughs> they're, they're, they're still grasping the concept of snowball fights. So, like, dumping piles of snow on me or my wife when we're fall, we fall down, that's the objective at present we're trying to build a snow fort until recently there was minimal amounts of snow in illinois so we had i have never shoveled my entire yard but we had shoveled all the snow in our yard to try to make little bricks i guess it's like bricks without straw but now we have (laughs) now we have the fuel for a future snow fort all right so where can people find you outside of this enoch oh man i have almost no social media presence so you you're free to email me at at enoch.hill at wheaton.edu and I'd love to talk more about the economy or stock markets <laughs> or markets in general. But, uh, but yeah. Well, thank you to you, Enoch. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. And the transcripts are done by Yvonne Sue and Bumi Ashola. Again, if you have feedback, write us an email. We are at podcast with an S at ChristianityToday.com or on Twitter at CT Podcast. And again, thank you everyone who rates and reviews the show. Please just open up your Apple Podcast app and do so there. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.